We're in the book of Psalms. We've looked at Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. Today we're going to look at Psalm number 4. Let's read it together. Look on our screens if you would. And I'll read the light part, you read the dark part, and we'll have a responsive reading. Would you stand with me as we all read together God's Word? Remember, remember the other week when I said that I heard the audible voice of God? You remember that? Do you remember how that happens? We read God's Word aloud. That's what we're going to do now as a worshiping congregation. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust the Lord. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate upon your heart, upon your bed, and be still. There's Selah. I read it again. Read the fifth verse. Many are saying, who will show us anything good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, have made me dwell in safety. Let's remain standing and sort of look our eyes upward as we close them, our heads. And let's pray. Lord, tabernacle among us in this service. May no one who is present not feel and know that you are here speaking truth to our mind, our hearts, our emotions, and the very center of our lives. Oh, Lord, our Lord, do a supernatural work within us. Is our prayer made in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For 136 years, the United States has celebrated Groundhog Day. It has no scientific meaning except in a little town in Pennsylvania, they bring out a groundhog as they did this past Thursday. And if the groundhog sees its shadow the groundhog is frightened and runs back in a hole for 24 days because there's more winter to come. And this year, I'm sure because the climate lunatics wanted it to be colder, sure enough, he ran back in his hole for 24 days. But when I think of Groundhog Day, unfortunately, I think of a movie that maybe many of us saw way back 20 plus years ago called Groundhog Day. 
And what happened, a man who was sort of a unscrupulous, thug-like person, like many of us here, he kept making the wrong decision and it went over and over again with tragic results. And that happened again and again and again and again. And they called it Groundhog Day until finally Eureka, there was an awakening and he made different choices and it changed his life. A lot of people think that history is cyclical cyclical, and if you keep making the wrong decisions, history is cyclical. Hegel, Hegelian dialectics, that was his whole theory of history. He said there was a thesis, there was a antithesis, and then there was a synthesis. In other words, you decide this, someone else decides something else, and finally you come together in the great synthesis, and a lot of people think that's exactly what we ought to do right now in this moment in history, just everybody come together, everybody compromise any basic principles. The important things is togetherness and history becomes cyclical like that. But God talks about linear history, linear history. Therefore, there's always a conflict there, but if we keep making wrong decisions, in the United States of America, we're going to experience over and over again the groundhog experience of Bill Murray in that movie. Look at some of the decisions we're making over and over again. This is the first week of February. Right now, February 1812, the Russians gained a foothold on American soil by establishing Fort Ross near San Francisco. This positioned Russia to take a key role in the expansion of the U.S. West Coast. Does that sound anything like something that we are experiencing today? First week of February, 1861, states that had succeeded from the Union formed the Confederacy. This marked the greatest divide in the history of our country and 618,222 Americans died in battle, the most devastating event in history. A country divided. Do you hear anything about our country being divided today? First week in February, 1937, FDR announced a plan to expand the Supreme Court to include 15 judges. His opponents quickly pushed back and the term, pack the court, fill the headlines. Have you, have you heard anything like that today? <laughs> the first week of February, 1980, the FBI released a report from a secret operation called Abscam. This operation revealed political corruption in government and led to the conviction of seven U.S. congressmen is anything like that going on today? Now this is almost repeated history in different veins, but I'll tell you something that's happened today that has never happened before in our history. A lot of things, but one thing just stands out in light of what we're gonna read in Psalms 4. 
Right now, the United States of America, we owe as a nation over $31 trillion. Well, that's a big number. That means that every citizen, every one of us who's a citizen of this land, we owe over $96,000. How do you like that? And what we have right now in Congress, in the House, with the president, they're debating over do we extend the budget limit because we keep extending it to owe more and more and more and more. Just to make it simple where I can understand it, there is discretionary spending. In other words, it can be voted as how the Congress thinks it ought to be spent. And there's non-discretionary spending. That would be the absolutes that are there. Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. And those things that we have to pay, including the interest to this debt, which is now over 8% of our total budget, that what we have to pay, non-discretionary, it leaves only 30% in discretionary spending. Now, historically, guess what we've done? For more successive administrations, roughly, the U.S. government has spent a trillion dollars more than it takes in until the last two years, we have spent five trillion dollars conservatively, and it gets us up to the debt that we now have. Historically, when negotiations take place in houses of government, somebody else cuts over here and ought to spend more over here, right? Oh no, we just increase the budget and we borrow more and print more. I cannot believe that semi-intelligent people ask the question, how do we get this in inflationary? What happened to us? Ladies and gentlemen, I think I learned in about the ninth grade one basic principle that I think is permanent. If you print money and you borrow money and you give that which you have printed and borrowed away almost indiscriminately except to fortify certain areas of your political base, that is a perfect formula every time for inflation. Does everybody understand that? If any family, any business, regardless of size, continues to spend over a period of time more than they take in what happens, the family, the business is destroyed, and we've got a bunch of incompetent, absolutely, I think, evil people getting us into a place in which there will be no return economically. There are some ways, and I won't enumerate them, I'm not conversant with all of them, that we can turn this thing around, but ladies and gentlemen, I don't think we have a lot of time. So here we are. There is a flood taking place that is completely capturing maybe over half of our country, I hope not, their minds and their hearts and their sensibilities. 
And therefore, we see America slowly but surely, too fast for most of us, I think imploding in and of itself. Now, you see this in Psalm 4. Well, you're going, no. You see it in Psalm 4. We read in Psalm 3 how Absalom, the son of King David, forwarded a revolution as he went around on every time a decision was made by David and by those in power, Absalom would go and take the very opposite course. In other words, he set up a new system of justice that was contrary to biblical principles that David tried to operate on on the basis of true truth of the scripture. And therefore, he changed the whole system of justice. Absalom went around and he changed the history of Israel. Absalom went around and he pushed out any precedent. And now we see in Psalm chapter number three, we see that he is engulfed, he's surrounded by thousands of people. David and his little band, as they fled from Jerusalem, the king fled barefooted, covered himself, was weeping and broken, and now he goes across the Kidron and he climbs the other side. Remember, he sends the Ark of the Covenant back, the presence of God, and now he goes over the Jordan and he is hiding and he is desperate and he is afraid. And remember that little phrase, Psalm 3. The bottom's falling out and the economy is totally broken as is hinted to in this fourth Psalm. And David says, there's, there's no hope, it's all over. The kingdom, the, the people of God have been exploited and pressed down. And then that little phrase, but thou, O Lord. Is that a great phrase? Whatever's going on in my life, whatever's going on in your life, however we are pressed, we're confused, we're broken, we're sick, if we can look up and say, but thou, Lord. David did that. And then he comes to the next chapter, and the problem there is different. It's not fear. Evidently, they had withdrawn. The army was gathering to resist the godlessness of his son, Absalom. And now there's another problem because now David is being attacked personally by those who opposed him. They were slandering, they were prefabricating, they were lying, they were gossiping, they were calling back all of David's sin and throwing them in his face. And then we see a strange thing, a thing that really I didn't see as I read Psalm over and over and over again. Go back to something you've heard in church all your life if you've been around. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. You've heard that. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Oh, it sounds good, but what does it mean? It means in the Old Testament there are the first notes, the first inklings, the first moment of fulfilled prophecy, and we see it in lies, we see it in the Halgeschitte, that's the German word for salvation history, which that's what the Bible is, salvation history. And we see the little 
themes and little notes and little chords in the Old Testament that's pointing to, pointing to, follow me, fulfillment in the New Testament. And here we have the law, and the law is fulfilled inside of grace in the New Testament. All you have little themes in the Old Testament, now it fulfills in the New Testament. We can see that in Psalm 4. And it is a beautiful picture of what happens in the New Testament as we see the gleam of it in Psalm chapter number 4, pointing to the fulfillment of it, follow me, in the New Testament. Open your Bibles, Psalm chapter number 4, middle of your Bible. I love Psalm. All the men can find it. Psalm chapter number 4. Verse 1 and 2. Answer me when I call, says David. By the way, this is called the evening psalm. This is a psalm to be read at night before you go to sleep. And Psalm 3 is the morning psalm, a psalm you'd read in the morning. And here it is. Answer me when I call, O Lord, the God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. By the way, this is the word of salvation. Well, that's a New Testament word, isn't it? But here we see the gleaming, the typology, the pointing to salvation. And now David is saying, in light of all of this, he said, I am saved. Hear it again. He said, answer me when I call. And the picture there for call to answer is a picture of a child trying to get the attention of their father. And David has said, Father, here I am. I am desperate. I had desperation physically, and now I have desperation emotionally as everybody is attacking me and is slain. He said, hear me. In other words, he's saying, I want to see your face. When I'd been away from home for a day or two, I went back, and my boys were young, and, and Ben was, I don't know, three or four years old. I'll never forget this. I came in and probably gave some little gift and talked for a minute, and, and I sat down in my chair, and I got all my papers out, and I had a newspaper up reading what had happened. And Ben's still on the floor playing, talking to me. And I'm saying, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, okay, I got it. And then all of a sudden, he gets up. I'll never forget. He just crashed through that paper in my lap, got right in my face, pulled my face around his. He said, Daddy, I want you to look at me when I talk to you. <laughs> this is what David is saying here. He is way alienated from family, from friends, he's desperate. And now he calls to God when all of those who are slandering him and bringing up old sins that had long since been forgiven, and he says, I want to look at your face. Boy, have you ever felt like that? God, I, I want to see your face. And this is exactly the picture we see here in this psalm. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have received me, relieved me in my distress. That's salvation. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. That's when we are saved. Oh, sons of men, how long will you honor? 
How long will my honor become approach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Two parts of salvation here. By the way, this is sort of a preamble. This is the planting of seeds that will be fulfilled in the New Testament, and this is salvation seen here in the Old Testament. And first of all, it is a personal salvation. That's what we need, first of all, personal salvation. Here's the word grace. Here's the word renew. Here's the word I'm in relationship with you. Here's the word he's saying I am now righteous, not in end of David himself. We're never righteous, but God in Christ makes us righteous. This is the early notes, the early chords, what we're going to see in fulfillment in salvation. It is a personal salvation. A guy went on the beach and he waded out of the water, as many of us have, all of us have. And he gets out there and all of a sudden he steps in a hole, a cliff. He just falls down. He thought he was waiting and he bobs up. He said, help me, save me. I can't swim. And the guy sitting on the beach says, I can't swim either, but I'm not making such a fuss out of it. <laughs> you see, the guy who was over his head, man, that was personal, wasn't it? The guy on the beach had the same problem. He was doomed himself, but he didn't know it yet. But what David is talking about, I want personal salvation. I have been drowned by the rebellion of my son and half the nation and now I have come up, and he sees that he has been saved. That's personal. Then the second part, it's more than personal. It's practical salvation. That's the guy who's going down. Verse 2, O sons of men, how long will you honor, will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Are you around people all the time that are negative, critical, Every glass is half full. No matter what comes up, they see the dark side of it. I read, only, I read this week that the oldest living person in the world today, as far as we know, is a woman in Spain who's 115 years old. 115 years old, and she's evidently bright and spry. So when somebody lives a long time, always the question is asked, what do you attribute the length of your life to? And they say all kinds of things if you've studied that or bumped into that through the year. You know what she said? I attribute my long life to staying away from people that are toxic. <laughs> That's good counsel, folks. And what David is saying I'm in Christ, I'm saved, I'm righteous, but there's these toxic people around me that will keep on blasting, blasting away at all of my sins, past and present. And he said, I want salvation from them. Personal, relation with God, and then salvation from all the toxicity that surrounds so many of us. Salvation, verse one and two. And then we look at verse three and four, it is sanctification. See, these are New Testament words, but we see the introduction of them there in the Old Testament, as with so many things. He said, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. He has set us apart. The Lord hears when I call to him. Do you know that? 
He says, therefore, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. This is sanctification. He said, I have been set apart. David knows that all the challenges that's facing him, it is a process of God has setting him apart, and he's finding out how God has indeed blessed him, how God has indeed used him, how God had indeed called him, how God indeed is challenging him for the future. How do you know? What are some little things or big things that come up in life and you say, you know, God's purifying me. God is cleaning up my act. God is challenging me. And we get those little words of assurance. I read this and I thought about when Joe Beth and I were first married. We've been dating five and a half years. I went to be an interim pastor of a church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I was there for the summer and we got in my car and we had a little, little bitty cart we pulled behind us that had literally everything we owned. And what was in that cart was the wedding presents we got. That's all we had. So we're making our way back to Southeastern Seminary at Wake Forest, where I'd been one year before we got married and she'd finished college. And we get to the seminary, we had, I had maybe $400 to our name, period. That was it. And we drove all the way to Wake Forest. We had no place to stay. She didn't have a job. I'd already tried to preach for some churches, but I wasn't married. I didn't have a wife that played the piano. Therefore, those little churches weren't interested in me beside being a poor preacher at that time and still. Anyway, we go to Wake Forest. I get in line to register. Long line. I'm in the middle of the line. I'm, I'm in front of somebody I know fairly well from the first year in seminary. Behind somebody I knew casually. So as we're waiting in line, we're talking, and, and I said, you know, I got married. Oh, good. And I said, you know, I, I've, uh, Joe Beth needs to find a job. And boy, I know jobs are scarce all around there, all the students, all the colleges, universities there in the Piedmont area. And he said, you know, my wife works at NC State, and they're looking, a, a professor is looking for a secretary to help him write his thesis. And I'll never forget what his thesis was. The hog phase in eastern North Carolina. He was writing a thesis on how hogs were dealt with in eastern North Carolina, and he did it and got a PhD, folks. <laughs> anyway, Joe Beth went and applied for that job, and he said, my wife's going to work. Why don't you let her ride, and she can apply for the job and maybe get it? I said, that's great. And I said, also, I don't have any place to stay. I didn't plan on that. You know how advanced planning it was. And the guy behind me said, you know, everything on the campus is full. Every apartment, everything is full. But he said, you know, there's a, a dorm mother named Mrs. Winders. And about 10 miles from town, she has a real log cabin. Not one that's been made by who knows what, but a real log cabin. And she rents out half of it to students. And I said, that sounds like perfection. And so I go and see Mrs. Winders and Joe Beth, and we see this log cabin. It is so romantic, I'm telling you. You go up these steps to sleep in a loft, literally. 
It was one room, a little kitchen, a little sitting area, log cabin out in the woods. Boy, what could you find a better place than that in the plant and go to school? Joe Beth goes to Raleigh. She applies for that job. There were about 70 or 80 other young ladies trying to get the same job. Joe Beth got it because she was a college graduate, but that wasn't the reason. She'd taken typing and shorthand in high school, so she got the job. So we come back, now she's got a job making the lofty salary, never forget it, $190 a month. I mean, where could you live with more affluence than that? And go to school. And I could study and go to school and play basketball in the afternoon. And that's what I did. And so everything was great until it got cold. It gets cold in North Carolina. It snowed. We could look out and see the outside through those logs. The heating was not there. And I said, we've got to do something there. We're going to freeze to death. And so I go to the register's office. It's Christmas. Everybody was leaving. And I go, look, you're building some new little apartments over here. There's four of them. You know, I'd like to see if I can stay in one. He said, my goodness, we got a waiting list for 20 or 30 couples. I said, oh, me. He said, what's your problem? I said, I'm staying in a log cabin. We freeze to death. That's my problem. Other than that, we're fine. And I said, well, thank you. I may put my name on the list. If, if I stayed there 20 years, I might get one of them. But as I was walking out, he said, he said, you know, they're just finishing one over here. It needs to be heated during the holidays, this Christmas holidays. We were staying there through Christmas. He said, you're going to be here through Christmas? I said, oh, yeah, we, we can't drive to Mississippi. No way. He said, if you can move in right now, you can have that apartment and get ahead of everybody. I said, it's done. He said, now you got to write a check for $40, down payment, that you're legit, and it's yours. I said, great. So I wrote a check for $40. I gave it to him. And I drove back in, picked up Joe Beth. I told her now she had a job. Now we're getting a brand new little one-bedroom apartment there on the campus. It was super. And I told her about it. I said, you know, I just wrote a check for $40. She said, how much? <laughs> and I said, well, $40. She said, she looked it up. She said, we only have $11 in the bank. So I had written a bad check to a seminary that was training me to be a pastor and supposedly a man of God. And I didn't know what to do. See, the campus was empty. All my friends were gone. I had no way back then to get $40. And I knew they would probably cash it during the holidays, and there I'd be, pastor, to be, or not to be, passed a bad check to the seminary. So we're driving in and we're praying and wondering and saying, well, I don't know well, where we could get $40. I was trying to think. See, the campus closed down. It was snowy. I mean, it was all over. And we go by our post office box and we opened a box and I had an Aunt Gladys who was like my second mother. They had no children. And I'd heard from her a little bit, but not in a long time. We pulled out an envelope and I opened the envelope and there was two $20 bills. She was a beautician, fixed hair, 
in her home. And that $40 was like 100000 to some of you here. And I looked at that, looked at Joe Beth. I said, but thou, oh Lord. You see, God affirms so many times when we're seeking to walk with him, things that happen that we say, boy, it's an accident, circumstantial, but is but thou, O oh Lord. That's what David was experiencing in sanctification. And then the next thing is worship. Powerful thing of worship. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Verse 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. What does that mean? Lift up the light of your countenance. It's Lord, I want to see your face. Lord, I want to see your face. I want to see your face. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is, he is God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his countenance shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Oh, yeah, and give you peace. The face of God. Does anybody here want to see the face of God? The smile of God. Boy, how is that possible? Listen, we have to understand one basic premise of life. God created all of us so that we could know him and so he could know us. But how do we see him? How do we see the very face of God? Quickly follow me. You have to think and concentrate for a moment. You remember when Jesus was crucified? A lot of things supernaturally happened. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And immediately following that, remember there was darkness, there was earthquakes, the opening of graves, all these things happened. But the first thing Matthew tells us, the first thing happened, after Jesus said it is finished, the first thing that happened, the veil in the temple was rent, not from bottom to the top, but from top to the bottom. And that veil is what kept everybody out of the Holy of Holies, which is where the ark was, which is where God was in Shekinah glory in the temple. Now, how big was that veil? It was 60 feet high, which is 10 feet higher than that window right there. It was 30 feet wide. And when Jesus died, the veil was torn. The veil was about eight inches thick, three colors, four colors. And it was torn, not from the bottom, but from the top, 60 feet up, all the way down to the bottom. And now for the first time, anybody, everybody could go and look into the presence of God and go into the Holy of Holies. You see, what happened? Jesus died for sin as he took sin upon all of humanity. And therefore, now when people have said in the Old Testament, if you look at God, you'll die, right? Anybody who sees God will die. But now in the New Testament, you want to see God? You just look at Jesus. That was God in human flesh. And when Jesus died and took all of our sin and the sins of the world upon himself, 
Now there was access to God. We can go because if David talks about the righteousness of God in his life, we can go, we can look into the Holy of Holies and we can see into the Holy of Holies and nobody went in there during the days of the temple except the high priest once a year to make a sacrifice on the altar. But Jesus made the total sacrifice and made the smile of God, the presence of God available to everybody. Now, let me ask you something. Why is it that so many of us have stayed and just stayed outside of the Holy of Holies? Why, why have we just never gone in and never experienced the face, the literal presence of God? Why haven't we gone in? We can be qualified because Jesus in Christ has made you and, and me righteous, right? We've been forgiven. We've been cleansed. Why do we not go in? Why do we sort of stay outside and not ever see the smile of God? You know why? It's because we still have a lot in our lives that has not yet been crucified. Galatians 2.20, a lot of us know it. A lot of us are familiar with it. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, I was crucified with Christ. Have you, have I really been crucified with Christ? Let me tell you something about being crucified. Being crucified means blood is shed, right? Can you have a crucifixion without the shedding of blood? Can anybody here be crucified without shedding of blood? And what we've done, we've taken the cross and we've eliminated the cross because, by the way, when you get on the cross, you die. Death is never good. Death is never fun. Death is horrific. Death is a result of sin. And therefore, if you and I are to know something of the very smile of God, the countenance of God, we have to genuinely go to that cross. And the cross is horrible, it's horrific, it's brutal, it's painful, and experience something of the pain in your life and in my life to be crucified and when we stay there and we die. What is the, what is the veil that's keeping us from going in the Holy of Holies, it's a veil of flesh and pride and self that covers our hearts and our minds, and that has to be crucified and cut out of us in order for us to be able to go into the Holy of Holies and see the smile of God. God doesn't keep us hanging on the cross forever, folks. But we need to go back and have that experience to make sure that ego and selfishness and pride. Did you know we can even use the church and the cause of Christ in order to exalt ourselves? We're so skillful. Yeah. But when we go to that cross, he cuts out. There's blood. There's shed. There's confession and all the self and selfishness and ego and chicanery and hypocrisy and gamemanship 
goes away when he cuts out all of that veil that keeps us from him, then we can go by the grace of God with humility into the Holy of Holies and see the smile on his face. Deep water, ladies and gentlemen, but that's what David has taught us in Psalm chapter number four. When the light of Christ shines in a life, it is tremendous protection from all of us. I had a friend. Two years ago, he came in from Oklahoma with hospital things, and, and he hit a bridge. The sun was shining that day, but in that bridge, he didn't see it. There was black ice. Black ice came, though the sun was brilliantly shining. He thought nothing. My goodness, he could have no problem. What happens on a bridge? There's a big side of the bridge and under that side the sun has not hit it yet there's black ice and he hit that black ice he began to spin around and around he had children in the back seat he locked on an 18-wheeler and somehow though it ripped his whole side of his car like opening a can no one was hurt he was back there just last week a couple of weeks ago in all the freeze he came the same bridge guess how he approached that bridge Oh, yeah, cars were banged up all around him, a two-hour wait, but he didn't because he pulled over the side because he had experienced that black ice before. Ladies and gentlemen, black ice occurs when the light of Christ does not shine on parts of your life and my life. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But spend some time at the foot of the cross and die and die. And then, like Jesus, we'll be resurrected. And all of a sudden, we'll begin to see and to feel and to know the presence of God in the lives of people, in the events of life. And God will do a miraculous work, I pray, in all of us and in the America in which we live.